1: Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. In June this year, a story came out that changed a sport forever. It tapped into geopolitics, ethics and integrity. The PGA had merged with the controversial Saudi golfing tour and it forced professional golfers into bed with Saudi money and it upset a lot of people. But there was another sports story that day and it didn't quite make the same splash, but it did exactly the same thing. It tapped into geopolitics, ethics and integrity. And I'm talking about snooker. Overnight, 8% of the sport's professional players were banned after a report accused them of match-fixing. It's a story that my colleague, Andrew Butler, has been looking into for weeks And it takes us from a small snooker hall in central Sheffield in England to a vast multi million pound black market industry in China and East Asia and to gangs, cash and gambling. And it starts with a single shot.
2: It's been one of the quietest sporting revolutions in recent times. Snooker has captured the imagination of millions of people in China over the past two decades. Having been a relatively fringe sport until the turn of the millennium, China now boasts an estimated 50 million amateur players. TV audiences for key matches have exceeded 200 million viewers. A fifth of the world's professional snooker players are now Chinese. Last year, that included a young player called Chang Bin Yu. It's round two of Snooker's British Open in September 2022. Chang Bin Yu is at the table. The reds are already cleared. And he's working his way through the colours. Each ball being potted edges him closer to victory. His opponent, Jamie Jones, is sat down watching his lead disappear. The game's about to become 3 2 in frames. First to four wins. And then? Chang Bin Yu misses the pink. Had he potted it with just the black ball left on the table, he'd have won the frame. As a result, Jamie Jones goes on to win 4-1 and proceeds to the next round. Changbin Yu, within months, will be banned from the sport because of this match. And by the end of 2022, nine other Chinese snooker players had been banned from snooker, some in the end for life. For match fixing. I'm Andrew Butler. This is the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. This week, Spotted Snooker's Fight Against Match Fixing. The story of how and why Chang Bin Yu missed that shot, and the huge reverberations it's had on the world of snooker, sport, and gambling. The rise in popularity of snooker in China is largely down to one man, the legendary Chinese snooker player Ding Zhenghui. In 2005, aged 18, he won the China Open, beating some of the world's best players in a match that even then was watched by over 100 million people on Chinese TV. As Ding Zhenghui's popularity rose, so did snooker's. This was a sport that had lit up China in the space of 20 years.
0: Sport in China is, for the Communist Party, so much about nation building.
2: Poppy Seabag Montefiore is a journalist for The Economist who specialises in China.
0: I'm the editor of Drum Tower, a podcast about China for The Economist. This isn't just something that began with the Communist Party. I think this is so deeply embedded in Chinese culture, the relationship that sport has to how people see themselves as Chinese and how people see China's relationship to the world. So in 1910, China opened its first national games and by 1933, Chiang Kai-shek, who was the leader of the Republic of China, said, he said, we should use sports to save the nation. Together, the Chinese can achieve their heroic national ambition. So I'm just telling you this because this is not just something that the Chinese Communist Party has invented, but, you know, it's been around from the beginning of what it meant to be a modern Chinese nation. So that's how it began, and that's what kind of continues today.
2: There are now nearly three thousand snooker halls in Shanghai and Beijing alone. Even for cities as big as they are, that's a lot. London has fewer than fifty. and gentlemen, time, the train will be arriving at Sheffield our final station. But the spiritual home of snooker is in the South Yorkshire city of Sheffield. Players travel from all over the world to train here.
3: I really just can't imagine playing snooker. No.
2: (laughs) For nearly 50 years, the World Championships, the biggest event in the snooker calendar, have been held at the Crucible Theatre in the city centre. So we're in Sheffield, the steel city that is known amongst fans as the home of snooker. The Crucible Theatre here has hosted the World Snooker Championship since 1977. It's the venue of some of the most historic moments, not just in snooker's history, for sporting history. In 1985, Dennis Taylor beat Steve Davis 18-17 here in the final frame of the tournament in a game that was watched by 18.5 million people in the UK. That's just under a third of the entire country's population. And that also happened at midnight. Uh, the Crucible is it's an unassuming-looking building from the outside. And on the inside, it actually only holds 980 spectators for snooker. It's not quite clear how many professional Chinese players were training in Sheffield last year, but it's believed to have been more than 10. They tend to live close to each other, a few miles from where they train at the Ding Zhonghui Academy or Victoria's Snooker Academy. Because of this history, Sheffield has become the destination for players. And it's where many of them live and train. Nine of the ten Chinese players who were banned in June lived in Sheffield and trained at two of the city's big snooker halls, which are pretty much only a stone's throw away from the Crucible. Every spring, the city is taken over by snooker as all eyes fall on the Crucible. But for the rest of the year, you can still feel the presence of snooker in Sheffield. A little more hidden, perhaps, but there nonetheless. The academy's elite halls for professionals to train at are nondescript. So we're outside the Ding Jonghui Academy, and having watched Ding Jonghui quite a lot as a young man, I expected the academy to be, I don't know, slightly more vibrant. It's an incredibly grey building um, above the b and bargains opposite a KFC and a subway there's still signage up from the WSF Open Championships in 2022 that hasn't been taken down yet and there's steps up towards the academy uh, which leads into kind of this quite bleak looking building like a 1980s town council building but the gate's open I'm not sure if the gate is supposed to be open um, so I think we'll try and head in there Oh, private property. Um, report then. It feels like an unlikely place from where one of the biggest sporting scandals in a decade erupted.
4: So, you know, there's lots of layers in this to unpick, really.
2: But, um, Nigel Moore spoke to almost all of the people involved in the snooker match-fixing saga to understand what happened.
4: I'm the vice chairman of the World Professional Billiards and Snooker Association. Um, I was the head of economic and specialist crime for the Met Police. So I did 33 years as a detective within that.
2: He was the one tasked with investigating what had happened and how.
4: I mean, I think I interviewed up to 20 Chinese players, looking at players who had been approached to fix matches by Liang Wenbo or anyone else. And then he then
2: them presented them. his findings to a disciplinary commission, who handed down the final bans for the players in June 2023.
4: And I think the problem in this case was that there were some senior players there who had quite an effect uh, over the younger players uh, who who used that to their benefit, to the detriment of the younger players.
2: At the heart of this story and this group of predominantly young players was Liang Wenbo. A central figure in this match-fixing scandal and now 36 years old, Liang Wenbo was the senior voice of authority.
5: Uh yeah, sometimes
4: I want to just control the table. Maybe no school heavy.
2: As a player, he had been capable of achieving greatness.
4: Yeah, a lot, a lot of my friends and the Chinese people watching.
2: Here in 2015, he had got through to the latter stages of the UK Championship, one of snooker's most prestigious events. A year later, he won the British Open and exuberantly jumped for joy as he celebrated the victory. He was just outside the top 10 ranked players in the world, capable of winning a game against most. He was photographed alongside sporting royalty like Sir Alex Ferguson. Ronnie O'Sullivan, snooker's greatest ever player, was supposedly a close friend. He had the world at his feet. But then, it all seemed to go wrong. He slipped down the rankings, and in 2021, CCTV footage filmed him in Sheffield City Centre dragging a woman to the floor and hitting her repeatedly. He was charged and received a 12-month community order. In 2019, he'd started betting on official snooker matches, something expressly banned under snooker regulations. And, according to Nigel Moore and the subsequent report from the commission, it was Liang Wenbo and a fellow player, Li Hong, who put pressure on other Chinese snooker players to fix matches.
4: What we've got is we've got players who are isolated from their culture and from their home country. They're in England where the majority of the players do not speak the language. You know, some can order a meal or a drink or whatever, but you know, beyond that they, they don't have a good understanding of English. So there's inevitability that when you're based in an academy, the players will get together. They will form a, a group and look after each other. And that normally is a good thing that we would encourage. So with the encouragement of senior players, the younger players were, were persuaded to fix matches.
2: Living in close proximity, often in shared houses, training for long hours in the same academies, that's how many of them became involved. As Liang Wenbo, we may not know how it started, but we do know why.
4: What what you've got is Liang and Li were taking money out of the fixes, but Liang Wenbo had particular financial difficulties.
2: According to sources, the Snooker Association had been made aware of Liang Wenbo's financial situation before they were first alerted to the match-fixing situation. It's thought they had arisen from a severe gambling problem, but it's still surprising just how Liang Wenbo found himself in such financial difficulties. In the seven years leading up to when he started to fix matches, he earned on average £125,000 a season in prize money alone. If you're wondering how it's possible to fix a sporting event, here's a quick how-to guide. Snooker is a more straightforward sport to match fix because it's an individual sport. Only one player needs their head turned. But a good fix is a hard thing. That match in the British Open last year between Chang Bin Yu and Jamie Jones, that missed pink, it was a bad shot. Notably so. And that shot, for a professional, should have been easily doable. I'm an amateur, so when I tried to play that very shot, I missed several times. To an amateur, it's very difficult. As I proved. But when the snooker hall's manager stepped up to the table, he potted with ease. It was, he thought, fairly straightforward. I'm shocked. That is such a good shot. I tried it at least half a dozen times. But even the best athletes mess up. Sometimes.
3: It's, it's very difficult. I mean, you have to be very good to make your fix cover up. Alan Algar has worked in betting for decades. Starting out as a trader, but doing numerous jobs, including communications, and shaped some of the match-fixing legislation when I was part of a sponsorship of the Conference Football League. He understands how a fix works as well as anyone. It's, it's the weird sort of seesaw balance of having to play these fixes, which I think is really interesting when you see the the highlights of these games. You've got to be really good to be bad and, and, and look like you're not fixing, look like you've just missed ever so slightly. But it's not at the table where a snooker fix is spotted.
2: Instead, it predominantly involves gambling. A player will be offered money to deliberately impact the outcome of the game they are playing in. That can range from losing the match entirely or to deliberately make a play at a certain time. So in snooker, lose a particular frame or lose a match by a certain margin. Meanwhile, the fixers know that this is taking place so they can manipulate the gambling markets by placing money on the outcome they know will happen. Due to the game being global, as well as internet gambling enabling instant access to odds and betting at the simple tap of the screen, it means fixers can be based anywhere in the world, well away from UK jurisdiction and gambling regulation. All being well for them, the bets come off and their quid's in. Snooker and sports generally have processes in place to spot this.
3: I'm Tom Harding, so I'm the Senior Vice President of Intelligence Investigations at SportRadar. Um, So yeah, lead our global investigation unit, which is a significant part
2: in this particular case. Um, When games are thrown, the betting market tends to move substantially and can be flagged up on gambling software that has been trained to alert bookmakers and sporting integrity companies whose job it is to ensure fair, legal and moral behaviour in sporting matters to the fact that suspicious activity has been detected.
3: We have so much visibility on the betting markets globally and sporting events around the world that fuels and enables our integrity operations. So since since we've started our monitoring and detection activity, we're now approaching 9,000 suspicious matches detected across all sports. Sport
2: Radar is the world's leading sports technology company and it can track odds movements at over
5: 600 bookmakers around the world. So in the pre-match betting markets, that could be where odds have decreased beyond a prescribed threshold, which we've set out, and in the live markets, it could be that there's a deviation between kind of what the bookmaker odds are doing and what we, are calculated odds, which is based off all of the games we've basically ever monitored, saying what the odds should be at that certain time. And it's basically this this two-tier approach that the the universal fraud detection system will generate this alert. And that's when us humans get involved. We're the team of analysts around the world. But they're looking into these betting alerts, uh, seeing if there's any kind of innocent reason for this strong and suspicious betting. Um, And if there initially isn't one, that's when we'll kind of review the match in a bit more detail. And ultimately, by the end of that review, we'll come to a conclusion about whether... A, there's any reason for the betting, and B, the betting is to a suspicious enough degree or an extent.
2: In August last year, they noticed movements in the betting markets relating to snooker. Once these games are detected, they pass the information on to Nigel Moore.
4: In late August, um, Sport Radar gave us an alert on a match, which was um, Jambo who was playing Aaron Hill. So we had the alert for the Jambo match against Hill before the match was played in August. Then, obviously, there's quite a lot of work went on in the background around data gathering, etc.
2: When Nigel Moore began investigating, he started to see that the fixes had happened over a period of years, not months, and had been exacerbated by COVID. And what really struck him was the differences to previous match-fixing scandals he'd investigated.
4: I think one of the things that, that came out of this that was quite interesting was... The, I, I dealt with Chai Yupeng and Yudalu in 2018 when they were, were sanctioned by an independent panel recently to this case.
2: In 2018, two Chinese players were found guilty of match-fixing. It was the latest in a series of match-fixing scandals to hit snooker. Prominent players such as Stephen Lee had received bans for fixes before. So when the two Chinese players were found guilty, the official snooker body decided to come down hard on them. Um,
4: and what I had hoped from that case was it would act as a deterrent so players would think, look, Eudeloo well, look, will never play the sport again, etc. I won't do it because of what it's going to cost me.
2: Delu was banned for life. The WPBSA, the World Pool Billiard and Snooker Association, the governing body for snooker, released a full report, not dissimilar to the one that we have been through for this podcast. But rather than act as a deterrent...
4: But what in fact happened was the senior players in this case, you know, Hangs, Liang, and Bose, they analyzed what we'd done in the Udalu Yupen case, and they looked to take steps to prevent what they were doing hitting our monitoring. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, they were they were trying to be quite clever around how they did business around this. They looked at the movement in the markets, and if there was a big movement in the market, they called the fix off. Instead of it being a deterrent, it became an education as to how you should fix matches and try and get away with it.
2: And for a while, Liang Wenbo's tactic worked. By reading the 2018 report, he was able to work out how previous fixes had been spotted and circumvent them. By keeping his group small, Liang Wenbo was, for a while, able to call off fixes shortly before games if the betting market
4: moved too fast. You know, if you're a player and you agree to fix a match... You have no idea who the person who's asked you to fix the match is going to tell. You've no idea how wide the betting is going to be and how many uh, alarms it might trigger. So the only way you could try and be safe is to do it yourselves within a group where you control the amount that goes on and you, you can, if you see the markets move, you stop.
2: Liang Wenbo had been approaching players at the academies in Sheffield, Ding Junhui, and Victorias. These approaches had been reported by some of the players and relayed via the academy back to Nigel Moore, who was able to follow up. And gradually, he began to piece together how the fixes happened. The players charged in the investigation, on the whole, only spoke Chinese. And so Liang Wenbo would approach them, speaking in Chinese, and offer a small lump sum for them to lose or throw a game. The figures would usually be in the low thousands. Let's take one example. The game that was first flagged that kick-started this investigation for Nigel Moore was Aaron Hill versus Zhao Jambo in August 2022. Zhao was approached by Liang Wenbo around a week before the match was due to be played. Liang Wenbo offered Zhao 4,000 pounds to lose the contest and not win more than two frames in the whole match. From this one game, Liang Wenbo managed to generate 30,000 pounds. He took £5,000, his accomplice Li Hung took the same, £8,000, double the originally agreed amount, went to Zhao. And his translator, who'd become suspicious, got £3,000 in hush money. The remaining £9,000, well, that went to an unnamed friend of Liang Wenbo's. Liang Wenbo operated with a carrot and stick approach. On the one hand, he was offering thousands to players such as Changbin Yu, who, when he was interviewed by Nigel Moore for the disciplinary commission, only had hundred pounds in his bank account. But if they didn't play ball, or if he feared they'd go to the authorities, he took a very different tack, as Changbin Yu found out.
4: Liang arranged for an associate in the UK to go and pick up Changbin Yu in a car, drive him somewhere, then he put Changbin Yu on the phone person driving the car to Liang Wenbo. Liang Wenbo threatened Changbin Yu and whilst the player was there, the uh, driver took his phone off him and then deleted all his WeChat and all his messaging around the uh, the process.
2: Other players had also commented on Liang Wenbo's threatening behaviour and he had accomplices too, such as the driver who picked Changbin Yu up.
4: So, you know, that was intimidating and threatening to a young player, and is, which we consider really serious. And of course, that was reflected in the, in the penalty that he faced.
2: A young player in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, a senior player like Liang Wenbo could be enough to intimidate you. But there were more senior players with more financial security
3: and who spoke better English also getting wrapped up in this. I think it is an interesting one because I, again, think it's more of a criminal element and threats that have probably been exerted on those younger players. So, therefore, I don't think there was a way of stopping it. I think, you know, they might have had threats from from people back home. And I don't think the snooker authorities can really get involved with that kind of thing. You know, they, they only have the code of conduct within their sport for their players. The illegal gambling market is a huge industry in Southeast Asia. I think one of the stats that, that you know completely blew my mind is that um, I think Nike's turnover in a year is bet in a month in those Far East illegal markets. So you think, you know, huge global corporation like that, what they turn over in dollars is actually being bet per month when, when high-level events are on. One expert told us black market sports
2: betting across Southeast Asia will comfortably be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Although Nigel Moore was at pains to say there was no evidence of organized crime involvement in the snooker match fixing, many people told us, including those with knowledge of proceedings, that it was very likely there were elements of criminal gangs involved in it. Remember, part of Liang Wenbo's strategy was to monitor betting markets and call off fixes if they moved too much. At the European Masters Qualifier in the summer of 2022, one of the fixes, a game between Chen Fen and Aaron Hill, was called off just a day before it was played. But this system ultimately wasn't successful. Liang Wenbo overstretched. He got too greedy.
4: What, what you've got is Liang and Li um, were taking money out of the fixes. But because Liang Wenbo had particular financial difficulties, he was also going back into China and was looking for people to invest in China for which he would then get a kickback. So of course, what what tends to happen when you do that is you lose control because you have no idea how wide the betting is going to be and how many uh, alarms it might trigger. So the only way you could try and be safe is to do it yourselves within a group where you control the amount that goes on. The problem is you won't make enough money doing it that way. So that's where it starts to leak into the wider market. And as soon as it does that, you lose control and it's going to hit the, uh, hit the monitoring.
2: The markets moved. Sport radar monitored and picked it up. It's often the Asian betting markets
5: which let the fixes slip. But I think crucially, it's kind of 19 Asian operators that we're, that we're monitoring now, and it's traditionally where we see a lot of the suspicious betting taking place, mainly because they're a lot more unregulated. They provide a large degree of anonymity to the better. And also their staking numbers are much higher, so it's kind of this perfect infrastructure for somebody wanting to get involved in match fixing.
2: In truth, few people really know just how many snooker matches were fixed during the time Liang Wenbo and Li Hang were involved. Only they really know, and Liang Wenbo refused to take part in the disciplinary hearing. What we do know is that at some point last year, Liang Wenbo got complacent. We know he was working with people outside of snooker to put the bets down and make money. And once he needed more money and involved more people back in China, the betting patterns in the black market in Southeast Asia seeped into the legitimate markets. And where there's black market money, there's often crime.
4: There will always be organised crime involvement in and around sports corruption. You know, when I was talking about it, I've been in involved in uh, corruption in Thailand. I've been involved in corruption, in, you know, Chinese players. I've looked at this. And, and there is this big, oh, it's the mafia and they're Chinese mafia or whatever, and they all get killed and that's why they do. No, it doesn't, it's, it's, that's not actually the case. There are isolated examples, as you described. But broadly, this is business, you know, and, and physical harm causes problems to business if you go out and do that. You're much better just turning your business to the next player or to the next bit. No. Retribution is, uh, uh, is overrated around most sports, I think.
2: Now it's different... Nigel Moore is limited in what he can do. He can go to the police if he sees evidence of overwhelming criminality, but...
4: The reality is, and I'm very sorry to say, there is no appetite with law enforcement to take any action. And of course, as a sports governing body, I can only deal with people under my jurisdiction...
2: After speaking to the players, coaches and others involved, Nigel Moore took the case to an independent commission.
6: The important thing is to keep an open mind and to listen carefully, to read carefully, ask questions and decide a case in the way that a judge would decide a case if this case was in open court.
2: The panel, made up of independent lawyers and one person from Snooker's official body, went through the evidence.
6: So my name is Ian Mill, I'm a King's Counsel. And Sports Resolutions, which is an independent body, which organises and administers disciplinary processes in different sports, appointed me to chair a panel to decide the fate of the 10 Chinese snooker players who were charged with Max fixing by the WPBSA.
2: Ian Mill Casey has worked on many, many cases. He's scrutinised some of the biggest British sports arbitrations, hearings and scandals, He represented the McLaren Formula 1 team during their infamous Spygate case, as well as being involved in Sheffield United's case against West Ham back in 2009. His job here was to scrutinise and assess Nigel Moore's work. Having first been alerted to the possibility of fixes in August 2022, by the start of January this year, all the players involved had been suspended. By March, just seven months after first learning of it, Ian Mill was chairing the commission. It was also the players' last chance to put forward their case.
6: When there is a a hearing, the hearing was remote, by and large, because most of the individual players were in China. They were, for the most part, unrepresented. One of the players didn't appear, and so he didn't therefore have the opportunity to challenge the evidence. It didn't mean that we accepted the evidence, but he wasn't able to put a positive case, or chose not to put a positive case. The administration of the hearing was extremely complicated, because it required simultaneous translation, mm. and it was extremely efficiently done.
2: In June this year, that commission delivered its verdict. A total of 10 players received bans, which ranged from two years a lifetime. Only Zhao Xing Tong remained in this country. He won the UK Championship in 2021 and was ranked sixth in the world last year. He'd earned close to £400,000 in the 2021 22 season. He got a 20 month ban for his involvement. This was extended by 10 months by the Chinese snooker authorities who'd lengthened five of the players' bans as a warning shot to any other players who may be tempted to do the same in the future. Zhao Tong could still hold a promising career in snooker when he returns in 2025, but for now, you have to think to yourself, what a waste. As for Chang Bin Yu, the player who missed that pink to lose 4-1, well, he's returned to China. It's difficult to know what the future holds for him. And his case feels particularly tough. He was the player with less than £100 in his bank account when the investigation started. He was the player who was taken for a car ride by one of Liang Wenbo's associates and threatened. Just 21 years old, his life, arguably more so than most, has been upended by Liang Wenbo's actions. Nigel Moore says the WPBSA have taken actions to avoid a repeat of this. From this season, all 130 professional players will be guaranteed minimum earnings of £20,000, regardless of how they perform in tournaments. That will remove the financial incentives for someone like Changbin Yu, struggling in a country with no money and little language skills. And he says this story shows how serious China are about snooker and about their reputation as a country upholding integrity.
4: The, the, the other thing as well, which is very impressive, I think, is the CBSA in China and uh, the action in China, because there's a lot of concern in China over corruption in sport. There are problems in football and basketball that are well covered in the media. And I know it's a big concern to the Chinese government, Chinese sports ministry. And in December 2021, they issued an order to all sports people, Chinese sports people, dudes, coaches, managers, all sorts of people involved in, in sport. And it basically lays down that you, should, you must not bet You must not get involved in match-fixing, you must not get involved in doping. You know, all these different things. And there are ramifications, serious ramifications, if you do.
2: In some ways, this has been a success story for snooker. A sign they're determined to clamp down on cheating. A display that China is serious about the sport, which bodes well for its potential for growth. But major questions linger. The lack of joined up thinking with law enforcement means the punishments will predominantly only ever be sporting if these cases were taken more seriously in a criminal sense that would surely act as a greater deterrent for sports people tempted to get involved and with the money sloshing around in black market betting operations it's likely to be a problem that will only grow bigger remember that number from earlier nike's annual turnover It's what's gambled in the illegal betting markets in Southeast Asia in a single
6: month. The temptations are huge. I mean, you may be looking at a few hundred or a few thousand quid for the participants, but the underlying figures are monumental in terms of illicit betting markets. What I do know is that it's an incredibly serious problem and everything that can be done must be done to stop it.
3: I really want to get this pink in.
2: <laughs> I think it's testament to the fact that I'm actually trying to get these in, but I'm missing by about as much as he missed by in that match. This is the one though. It's getting worse. Snooker's really hard. Snooker's is very hard. This episode was reported and produced by me, Andrew Butler, and Matt Russell. The sound design was by Hannah Varrell. The editor was Jasper Corbett.
1: Tortoise
2: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special
0: offer. That's
3: Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
0: This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over.